It is safe to say that we will not miss 2023. Some thoughts on the year that has been and what we might see in 2024. And our guest is someone who inspires so many people in Israel and abroad and probably would give everything not to be in that position. It's Unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy, two Jews on the news. With our last episode of the year, you'll need our last planned episode anyway, after <laughs> events of this year, you always have to leave room for that. You can't be too As careful. You, you can't be too careful. As you say, not quite the year we planned. I mean, the, the, the year began with, we knew there was going to be a new government. The surprise of 2023 at first, we thought, was that it was all about the judicial overhaul or the judicial coup as its opponents call it which also was not anticipated it came as something of a surprise in the beginning of january because it hadn't been uh, front and center of the election campaign of of the new incoming and returning prime minister benjamin netanyahu so that itself was a surprise it dominated for eight months we talked about it from every possible angle you and i right through the year um we you know emergency updates about rulings and votes and all that kind of thing all of which was then, of course, massively overtaken by what happened on October the 7th, which is one of those dates that has entered the language as a shorthand for a whole lot of things, um, like 9-11 or, or, or other dates. And that has dominated our conversation right till this moment. It will into 2024, although a bit of a blast from the recent past, just in the last few hours um, with with the news where you are. Yeah, I mean, you've summed it up uh, perfectly. I, I thought in my mind that this episode, its working title should be Good Riddance 2023. But we're Jews, we know it can always get worse. So maybe we should keep that title to ourselves a little bit. Um, sure, this year, you know, the Netanyahu government was sworn in December 29th. 2022. And as you said, the volume, the velocity of coming in with the uh, judicial overhaul and the judicial coup, and, uh, and we will talk about the big headline coming out in that regard in the last 24 hours. And then, of course, the world turning uh, upside down for us Israelis, for the Jewish world on October 7th. So I think we can talk a little bit about that in a minute, but I will uh, bring us up to speed um, with that with that uh, headline that we're talking about, the big news coming out of Israel that has nothing to do with the war, is that Israel's high court is poised to nullify the most important part of the judicial coup uh, law that has passed last summer. This is a leak, actually, of the draft of the ruling. It has been leaked to uh, our my colleague uh, Meet Segel on Channel 12. It, it reminds us a little bit uh, of that story of the Roe versus Wade leak in, in the Supreme Court, uh, just in the sense that it's really unprecedented. But we now know that, according, again, to this draft, uh, there's a razor-thin majority that supports basically nullifying this law. Now, this is this is dramatic, okay? There are going to be eight judges who uh, support nullifying the law uh, that eliminates the reasonableness clause. We can get into that or remind our listeners what's that uh, what that's all about, and seven judges that oppose it. Now, what's interesting about all of this, Jonathan, is, of course, this isn't a political earthquake, but ever since this story happened, the world has turned upside down, so it's less of, um, of a dramatic effect because even the biggest supporters of this judicial overhaul, I don't think, uh, believe that Netanyahu's government at this point, I'm not even talking about elections coming, et cetera, at this point need to be focusing on 
the judicial overhaul. Like this is not the first, second or third priority Israel has to deal with at this point. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have been so enormous as a story up to October the 6th. Uh, it would have been, you know, ground shaking. Uh, and now it's sort of inside pages in, in, in the <laughs> language of a newspaper. But it's a, a jolt to me that it's so close. I think that's fascinating. Uh, it may, mm -hmm. that may tell us a lot about the provenance of the leak, just as the leaking of the Dobbs decision, uh, people deconstructed. There was a lot of kind of Kremlinology about how that came to be leaked in the United States, the decision on abortion rights. Similarly, who benefits from this being leaked? That's interesting. But that it's so close. I, I, the one caveat I would just put is there will be some who will say, ah, so the Supreme Court in Israel is split between eight who favor the judicial coup and seven who oppose it. That would be wrong, I think, uh, because there were some who thought, of course, these, this judicial overhaul is wrong, but it probably is not illegal. And there were, you know, legal scholars who said, I hate this, uh, you know, with all my every fiber of my being, but I don't think you can say it's illegal. So my guess is the court was split on those lines rather than some saying, yeah, it's great. Some saying, no, it isn't. I think it's, you know, that would be too crude. I mean, it's another weakening, surely, for Netanyahu, uh, who is whose position is perilous anyway, politically, when, you know, you talk, think about the poll numbers you talked about with us last week from your channel. Uh, he's politically, you don't want to say he's hanging by a thread, but he's very, very weak. And this is, I suppose, yet one more weakening of him. Well, first of all, we have to say, and you mentioned this, the question here was not only about the reasonableness clause itself, but whether the High Court of Justice in Israel will strike down a basic law. This would be the first time. And again, you mentioned this, there were judicial uh, experts who said, I hate the, the, the striking down of the reasonableness clause, but I don't think the Supreme Court should intervene in this issue. As we see, the judges uh, think slightly differently. There's a razor thin majority. You ask the question, who leaked it? What was their interest? I think whatever their interest was, this cemented the opinions of the judges. Because the moment that this has been leaked as the draft, the moment that we know that there are eight judges who think you should uh, uh, strike down and nullify the law, and seven who think that you shouldn't, any changing of their minds for the, uh, to the time that is left until the deadline of publication of this, which is January 12th, is going to look bad on either side. So it kind of cemented their opinions. Again, we are living in a different world. And this story would have been the hugest story. I assume that Netanyahu supporters would have pulled this and put this out in the open and used this as a way to, to attack uh, the Supreme Court and to attack anyone supporting the Supreme Court. Again, we are not in that reality anymore. And that connects me to you know, thinking when we think about where we are right now in the war, in this country, in the sort of, you know, when we look around us, we are looking at something that isn't reality. I don't know if I'm explaining this correctly, but you know, like when you look at the sky and you're actually looking at light from millions of years ago, in that regard, we are not looking at the real present of Israel, the present we're in a war, we're in a limbo situation. The minute the war takes goes into the second stage and the intensity of it uh, uh, lessens, we are going to see an outburst of rage in the society like we have never seen before, targeted at the military, targeted at the government. We are going to see, I assume, uh, a rolling down uh, or up, depends on what your opinions are, uh, towards elections. And we're going to see a cycle of 
you know, accusations, recriminations, things we we can't even, I think, fathom yet where we're we're heading in this country. Yep, I think that sounds exactly right, that everything is pent up, ready for that moment. The question will be whether Netanyahu and his supporters can divert some of that anger and frustration at the old targets, the elite, the establishment, the Supreme Court. Will that be, I mean, it would be extraordinary to blame, you know, the judges for the failures of October the 7th, but you wouldn't put it past uh, Netanyahu and his camp to try and say, this is the deep state, the establishment who... Uh, it's, it's, uh, some of some of Netanyahu's supporters have already been trying to do that. Yeah. The, so, saying and they, that and the and decisions and by the Supreme Court not to fight terror in the way that that's parts right. of the right thing Tied our hands and so right, on. Right. And, and in fact, it was something, one of the, uh, it came very, very early. It was really early on after October 7th, that attempt to point the finger. Um, so that obviously would have been huge news. It still is pretty big news. And it will, I think your point about how we can't even anticipate the tidal wave that is coming is really well taken. Um, we should talk about other things that have were, were making the news before then, before that leaked uh, Supreme Court judgment. And your point about it now cements in the part, the, the judge's to that verdict in a way. A lot of attention to the remarks of uh, Benny Gantz. Polls suggest he will, uh, he's on course to be the next prime minister, directing reporters internationally and uh, to pay attention to the northern front, to the border with Lebanon, and saying that if these rockets from Hezbollah uh, out of Lebanon do not stop and are not stopped either by the Lebanese government or by the West, which must mean the United States particularly, then Israel will take action of its own and take uh, the law into its own hands, as it were. A warning, really, that you know what Israel has done in Gaza, it could do in Lebanon. Um, just a, a flagging up, something we've, I think, on the podcast have made sure not to lose sight of, but the Northern Front is there. There's huge attention on Gaza. Uh, if you imagine a hypothetical world where the war in Gaza was not happening, the confrontation in the north would be big news. And there have been, you know, sustained uh, rocket attacks from that direction. So that is something to pay attention to, sounding to me like um, the Benny Gantz is preparing the ground for something that may be necessary. So the situation on Israel's northern border demands change. And he said it at a news conference. So this is a message that is, you know, loud and clear, I think. Yes, and when we talk about what we're looking forward to, what what will happen, and what what to expect in 2024, this is a problem that hasn't been resolved. And remember, mere I think it was a day or two after October 7th, 65,000 Israelis uh, were um, evacuated from the northern part of Israel. When you think of what happened by the Gaza border, Kfar Aza uh, is a kilometer away from the Gaza border. Be'er is three kilometers away. The town of Margaliot on the, on the northern part of Israel is 100 meters from the border. And Hezbollah is a more formidable force than Hamas ever was. This has to be resolved somehow. We are two months and a half into tens of thousands of Israelis not living uh, where they should be living in the north. And, and it's very clear, by the way, on this issue, the United States thinks no war. We're going to solve this diplomatically. Israel in its heart of hearts, really doesn't believe that the Hezbollah will volunteer to uh, maybe go a little bit to the north and move away from the border. How is this resolved? Are we looking at a second front at some point opening up in the in the north? Yeah, and I think it underlines to me hugely Israel's dependence on the United States for that deterrent effect. It was one of Joe Biden's first moves, moving to 
aircraft carriers into the area to ju- and his one-word message to Hezbollah and to Iran, its patron, don't. Uh, you know, I often think this when you think about some people, particularly again, Netanyahu on the right, who try and, you know, uh, poke, um, the United States or, 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 or trigger some kind of confrontation, some standoff with Biden and his White House. The degree of Israeli dependence on the United States for that deterrent effect, uh, should not be underestimated. You mentioned a second front. No, just that there was, this is going to be the double play by Netanyahu in this, in these coming months. On the one hand, yes, he understands Israel is completely dependent upon on the United States. But for political reasons, he's going to want it to appear like he's arguing with the uh, Biden administration because that will help his political uh, standing in his uh, own political base. That's no, I completely understand I that. But, but but my response to it is, you know, it's playing with fire. The United... Uh, that, you don't mess with the quite quite literally yeah and you don't yeah it is quite literally you don't mess with the israel us relationship if you're an israeli leader because the country depends on it i mean it was rabin i think former ambassador to washington yitzhak rabin former prime minister obviously as well but he used to say that the us israel relationship was the number one strategic asset of the country and yet netanyahu for years has sort of messed with it. Um, I was just going to go on to a third front, if you like. It's not quite a front, but um, the Red Sea and the Houthis out of Yemen uh, constantly hitting shipping uh, that is moving through there. The big uh, shipping line, Maersk, saying they are going to resume shipping, but others feeling as if they should stay away. This is something that doesn't just hit Israel, it had, there is a risk there of it crippling global shipping and trade. And, you know, not to darken the mood even more, but people saying that because if there's a way to turn this conflict global, that might be the place because this is actually um, having a huge effect on, on, on global trade patterns because of this vital shipping, uh, pa- you know, shipping lane and sort of trade passage. Um, I don't really know what Iran is up to with that, whether what their game plan is, whether it is simply to just, you know, hurt Israel more or whether they do have, you know, a global agenda on their mind. Well, first of all, <laughs> you know, you should take with a grain of salt any sentence these days that begins with Israel's military uh, intelligence assessment is. Um, but but I will say that gently. But I mean, the assessment is that Iran doesn't want to full at war with Israel. This obviously is something, you know, very, very problematic. Uh, there are rockets, there are UAVs. The interesting thing to look at is there are friendly neighboring countries that are helping Israel to intercept some of these uh, problems. But this is something that, you know, you've seen the United States stepping up with regard to this. We're going to see this as as another issue to be uh, dealt with. It is not going away. Uh, and, um, you know, at the beginning, it's it, it sounded like something very far away, something that, you know, is just trying to sort of um, be just another small problem. It's not a small problem. It is going to become a problem, but not only for Israel. Not only Israel is going to have to solve it. Yeah, um, one of the one of the agenda items I think for uh, for twenty twenty four and something uh, we might well come back to on the podcast to to, to talk about that uh, more. And of course, as it's been from the beginning, uh, the war is also a information war, a sort of PR war. And for people who are keeping score, uh, Israel got some as it were, sort of helpful headlines this week. It granted a whole lot of reporters access to the tunnel network, uh, the networks of uh, Hamas tunnels under Gaza. 
and you know of broadcasters and others just couldn't in some ways fail to be struck by the sight of some of these tunnels so big you could drive vehicles through and there were some of those reports and i think that probably did help people outside the country understand quite what uh, Israel is up against in Gaza with an enemy that's had 15, 16 years to build a proper serious infrastructure below ground. On the other hand, um, defenders of Israel will struggle and are struggling to explain things like the images that came out of suspects, including some very clearly young children uh, detained in a stadium, stripped down to their underwear. Those pictures have also, like the tunnels, gone around the world. And there was, and the, the facts of this are disputed, um, but reports of an attack on a Catholic church in Gaza that brought condemnation from the Pope himself. Uh, so that battle of, you know, images and reports absolutely continues with people digging in on both sides, either disputing the veracity of these uh, incidents or um, spreading those images, etc., virally. All of that going on while there is a drama that has never gone away um, outside the military confrontation. And that, of course, is the story of the hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, we have long wanted to talk very directly about their plight. And this week on the podcast, we have someone I, uh, who could not be better placed bleakly to talk about that. Rachel Goldberg Poland has become the international voice, heart, and conscience of the hostage crisis in Israel. Her son, Hirsch, uh, 23 years old, uh, was abducted by Hamas um, 83 days ago, taken into Gaza. He is wounded. The family, Rachel, and the whole family um, have immersed themselves tirelessly in the campaign to bring him and uh, the rest of the Israeli hostages back home. Rachel, thank you so much for talking to us today on Unholy. You're welcome. I just want to tell you, we're also interested in bringing all the hostages home, not just all the Israeli hostages. Yep, home. that's a good that's a good correction, <laughs> right. and thank you for that. <laughs> uh, I see you uh, right now uh, in our conversation. You have uh, the number eighty three on your on your shirt. I assume that uh, updates daily. Correct, correct. The, there's so many nauseating parts of my day, but I I come out of my bedroom, and the first thing I do before I even put the sticker on me is I go out to my porch where I have a huge counter. Um, we live on the fifth floor overlooking a huge industrial area. And I change the number on the sign outside. And then I come inside and I'm still in my pajamas and I put a number on my pajamas just, you know, immediately. And then once I get dressed, I switch that sticker to whatever I'm wearing because mm -hmm. um, I think it's important that every day we're aware that, that something's changing, that the number's growing and the um, the danger's growing, and especially in America, it made and abroad, it makes people very uncomfortable, which uh, is good. You should feel uncomfortable that there are human beings still being held hostage. And one of them, obviously, is your son. And before we talk about all the things you've done in the campaigning, it would be good for us, I think, and our listeners to hear and have a sense of of Hirsch, who he is, what he's like. Just tell us about him a bit. Sure. Well, I love talking about Hirsch. <laughs> um, first of all, Hirsch is my firstborn. So um, I said, you know, there's something very special uh, 
the person who changes you from being a person and being who you have been to mother always there's like this uh connection that's um a very hard to describe connection so obviously you know i have that connection um hirsch is a very curious smart uh respectful, very, very respectful, and yet super funny, dry, dark sense of humor, uh, sarcastic without being mean. He doesn't go over to mean. In fact, he's never mean. Like that's just not, that's not his um, MO. John and I both said, we've never, and this is pre-October 7th, we've never heard her shout. Like it's just not who he is. He is obsessed with soccer, obsessed with music festivals. He had just spent nine weeks this summer traveling by himself to six different countries in Europe to go to music festivals by himself. He loves meeting people from all different places and all different backgrounds. Wild about geography since he was in kindergarten because he had this incredible uh, Irish Catholic teacher who was obsessed with geography and she made sure that all the kids learned everything. And he had a photographic memory. So he, he just became very obsessed with travel as a tiny, you know, as like a five-year-old, as a six-year-old. So he, for all of his birthdays, he would ask for maps or globes or atlases. He asked for National Geographic um, for a subscription. So we got him, they have a junior National Geographic, which we got him. And then at the end of the year, when it was expiring, the subscription was expiring, he came to us with that little, you know, back in the olden days when they would send like a card that said, you need to re, you know, resubscribe. And he came to us and he said, but this one is beneath me. I need <laughs> the real National Geographic. So, you know, he, um, I, you know, he's just starting his life and he was supposed to yesterday was his ticket to fly to um, India to start the trip he's been planning since first grade. That was going to be anywhere from a year to two years. We knew that. Um, and um, we ended up going to the airport yesterday with the bag that we bought for him that he was supposed to um, be using for this big trip. And 50 of his, of our daughter's friends and some family friends came and we did like this whole little, ceremony and we handed out stickers to people who were on his flight to India um, and said, when you get there, please, you know, put up stickers um, and send us, send us video of, you know, your adventures. And uh, people have already sent, we have um, amazing videos that people have sent to us from different places that he was planning on being on saying, Hirsch, we're waiting for you. Hirsch, come on. Um, so that's Hirsch. Hirsch is uh you know, I'm a mother. So obviously I, I think all mothers think that their kids are wonderful, but I always say, you know, it's not that Hirsch is perfect, but he is the perfect son for me. <laughs> and you said, uh, I think that you, um, that these days you're pretending to be a person. That's very poignant. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us more about that? How, you know, besides yeah. being the advocate and, and talking and talking to crowds, talking to, you know, important people around the world, what do your days look like? What, how does the family struggle through this? So, um, you know, I open my eyes in the morning and I immediately know, oh, shoot, I'm still in the nightmare. You know, it's a nightmare. It's a day mirror. It's an all the time mirror. And I say Moda'ani, the prayer that the traditional prayer that that many Jews say upon waking that actually says like, I'm grateful to you, God, for giving me back my soul, 
you have so much faith in me. And then I say, let today be the day. And I get up. And as I was describing, and I get up and the first thing I do is change the number on the porch and I put the number on my body. And, um, you know, I look at my schedule. We're surrounded by this outrageously talented team of people who came to us on October 7th and have not left in 83 days. Um, and they plan how we walk through our day. And as you mentioned, because I have to make a decision every day and so does John that we now have to pretend to be human because my heart and soul were torn out and stolen to Gaza on October 7th. So I look a lot like a person kind of, and I, I still know how to kind of fake it and behave like a person, but I am in such existential angst and despair at all times that Look, of course, I have my moments where I have to say to the team, um, I'm going to my room now, which is code for Rachel has to go cry. Um, and, you know, and I go and I do my thing and I wipe my face and then I come back to go on because there is this primal, maternal, innate need to save him and to save them. And the problem is if I'm on the floor in a fetal position in a puddle, it can't really save him. So I have to take that and I have to put that somewhere else and I have to go forward and I have to do every single thing possible to try to save him. And I'm not, you know, people will say like, like, wow, you're really doing so many things to try. I'm not doing anything. John and I just spoke about this. We're not doing anything that any other parent wouldn't do. It's just that so few parents are put in this position. Thank God. Um, but I, I don't know if you are parents, but I mean, think of your own parents, your own parents would do this for you. You know, it's not, this is not exceptional. This is not unique. It's simply that there aren't very many people on planet earth with the unfortunate task or mission to save their child. You you mentioned God there, and you mentioned that your day begins with the prayer. And I think um, some people, I think, would hear that and wonder how on earth that is possible, even beyond just getting through the day, that you have retained faith even when something like this has happened. What do you say to people who are, who are asking themselves that question? Oh, well, it's actually interesting because I didn't even continue on of what I do after, you know, putting the number on and I have my cup of tea and then I go and I actually pray every day, which I've been doing for years and years. This isn't like a since October 7th, but, you know, I have this relationship with this idea of God and it actually during this period is very important for me. So every morning. Um, I then sit down with my prayer book, you know, with my Siddur, and I actually pray the morning, uh, traditional morning prayers that, that many people do. And listen, a lot of times I'm, I'm shouting and my kids know, my girls know, and I'm very, uh, you know, hand motion. I'm very, you know, now more than ever, there's a lot of like, you know, putting my hands up and, and having a conversation in anger 
is also a relationship with God or having a conversation of what are you up to is also a conversation with God. And a lot of, you know, throughout the day, I find it to be very helpful. And I'm not talking about the, oh my gosh, you're so cool, God Psalms, which there's room for that. But I'm doing the ones where like King David was saying, like, how long are you going to make me suffer? How long is this despair going to go on? And there's something very validating that other people have gone through tremendous angst and despair and anguish and, and trauma. And for me, for whatever reason, I'm not in that place where people say there can't be a God. It, you know, like this horrible, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that as a response, right? Um, I'm not there yet. And I actually am very thankful I'm not there. And I hope I never get there. Because for me, in a time where there's so little that can bring me any moment of focus on not being terrified is helpful. And when I'm praying, it does that, even if it's an angry praying. And sometimes before I start, I'll even say, I'm just telling you right now, this is not going to be good. Like, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm going through it because I like the ritual of it, but I know it's not going to be good. And we all have those moments in life in different things that we do where, you know, you're going to go through, I'm sure there are times where you guys show up for work and you're like, we're going to go through this, you know, podcast or this news, you know, segment. It's not going to be my best, but I'm going to walk through it. Yeah. You know, there are 83 days, I mean, is, is such a long period. And there are things that have happened since October 7th. First of all, there are Israeli hostages that came back home. There has been another attempt at a hostage deal that thus far has failed. There has been a tragic shooting of hostages by the IDF. I, I wonder where you find yourself when you're confronted by all of this news, is the way to deal with it sort of shut it out? Is the way to deal with it? What do you do when you hear all of this? Well, each thing is its own thing. So mm -hmm. first of all, when, when the first um, agreement was finalized and we were told beforehand, listen, Hirsch is not going to be in this, um, in this agreement. It was so wonderful that they told us that because then we were purely happy for the people getting out. There was no kind of like, you know, when, you, when you're playing bingo and you hope that your number comes up, there was none of that because we knew he wasn't getting out. And, and we felt that it, what, it made sense, the babies and the, and the children and the women were getting out. So, so instead that, I said in this whole 83 days, those days, those like four, and then I think it was five, there was like yeah. a bonus five, were the only moment of respite in, in a torturous situation. And all the more so because we now have grown to know so many of the families. So we were watching and saying like, oh my gosh, it's Moshe's daughter. Oh my gosh, it's Yair's niece. And, you know, it was actual true joy, thank God, because, you know, something that's sad for me, and I was thinking of it yesterday was, you know, I just miss being happy. Like I can't be joyful. I, I try really hard and I have manifested some joy. I was trying to think like, how can I feel joy? And the way that I was able to do it is I was picturing Hirsch's wedding 
and I was picturing her holding Hirsch's first baby, you know? And so I was like creating joy, but I miss actual joy. Like I miss not, you know, I don't want to have to like create it and, and fake it. I want to actually have that experience. So that was really wonderful. When those hostages were released, it was a moment. It was a whisper uh, for us. So that was that first um, feeling, the second chunk of your talking about the failed um, attempt of another uh, agreement. Obviously, that's crushing. Look, that whole first week when people were being released, we were aware that it was held together by the finest and thinnest, most delicate of thread. And every night we were holding our breath, oh my gosh, is it going to work? And there was that second or third night where they they said, no, there's an issue. And we were all like, you know, so um, but it was, it's obviously crushing to us, to every hostage family, because the hostages who were released started to reveal what they experienced and what the conditions were like, where we were already in excruciating pain on so many levels, you know, that pain just went skyrocketing, breaking through every ceiling. And so then it's like complete panic and anxiety. So the thought that 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 broke down is for us, you know, excruciating. And then obviously two Fridays ago with the tragic, horrible mistake of the soldiers uh, shooting these hostages who did every single thing right. They did every single thing right. I mean, it was just horrible. And the truth is I felt terrible for the soldiers. I felt terrible for them. And you know who's the real, I mean, She's such a queen that the mother of, um, Yotam, I forget, Yotam, right, Yotam who said, who said, first of all, I'm not angry at all. And they, mm-hmm. you know, and I love them and I feel for them. I mean, she's just, you know, amazing, amazing, beautiful soul to know mm-hmm. that these obviously, you know, it was a horrible horrible mistake, but this is what happens in war and conflict. And this is what's so sad, right? All over the world, um, whenever there's there's conflict and there's war, it, there's always mistakes. There's always innocent people hurt, always. You mentioned those thousands, hundreds of thousands of messages um, from around the world. And your highlighting of Hirsch has captured people's imagination around the world. I think partly because of this speech you made, which, you know, went viral, in which you expressed empathy for the woman you imagined who looked like you um, Mm. in Gaza. And you said, there will be a woman who looks just like me. And you wrote a poem, One Tiny Seed, and you talked about how uh, you faulted those who only get outraged when one side's babies are killed. You showed this empathy for people in Gaza. Not many people can manage that. And, you know, I've spoken to lots of them, Israelis and Jews, who admit that they only really have room for their own pain. These are not people who are going through what you're going through. Um, But they say they can't look at or really think about the images that are coming from Gaza, that instead they're still stuck in October the 7th. You somehow managed to sort of transcend that, but do you have sympathy for people who admit that they just can't do that? I do. I think, look, all of us are going through a trauma, all of us, and and I don't think it's a competition, meaning 
obviously people look at families with loved ones who are held hostage and feel that, okay, they won. (laughs) And I don't mean that. I mean that the whole entire country is going through a real trauma, uh, an actual trauma, a physical trauma, an existential trauma, a psychological trauma, a spiritual trauma. I think we're all going through that. And how everybody handles that is going to be different. And so I honestly, I don't judge anyone. I really get it. (laughs) You know, like the interesting thing is that people who reach out to me from the other side, and it's rare, there's a young man, uh, an Arab Muslim who reached out to me, he's 24, to say, I'm Hirsch's age, you know, I'm a little older. I also love soccer. I really want to meet him. There's a special time when you wake up in the middle of the night and you say a certain type of prayer when you really want Allah to respond. And my mother and I have been getting up and saying that prayer for Hirsch. And that was very powerful for me to hear from that, that side. And I also, you know, it's also that the Hirsch that I know has fought for coexistence, has been a pursuer of peace, has been a minority voice among his, his peers throughout his life and his friends. Um, and I feel that the, who I am and who he is, this is our voice. Um, and I'm also very grateful that when I was in university, I had a teacher who really taught about the idea of transcending an adversarial paradigm that we're trapped in, or, or we feel that we're trapped in. I don't know that we're trapped in it. And that was really the, the source of those speeches of, of when I speak that way. It's really that, what can we do to transcend this horrible cycle that we're caught in and none of us seem to benefit from it? You know, it'd be one thing if like, okay, it's a bad cycle, but it's working for one side. It seems like it's not working for anyone. You know, the, the Israeli government is saying and has been saying for a long time since this began that it's just the, mili- the military pressure will bring back the hostages. That is, if we're talking about paradigms, this is their paradigm. What do you think about that? And have you been trying to talk to any sort of key office holders about this over the past, you know, couple of weeks? Uh, and do you feel like they're listening to you? Well, we have spoken to and we've been in you know we were invited as and the hostage families are invited often to these meetings that are I don't go to them John goes to them I feel like um I'm in enough pain (laughs) so I don't want to go to a meeting where everybody is screaming and crying um but I do know that that's the method that we've been told is you know this is what works I have said a lot I'm not a military strategist I'm not you know, I don't have acumen in sort of the diplomatic or political world. I don't understand these tactics. So it's hard for me, obviously, to think that this is the right way to go about it. On the other hand, I appreciate that we have been told there's a two-pronged approach here, that we need to diminish Hamas's military capacity to do an October 7th again. And obviously that is true, right? We can't have October 7th happening every few months. It's not an option. So I get that. And I think that when we're saying at the same time, 
we're trying to get the hostages back, to me, it feels like that's kind of tricky to do those two things that seem very disparately on a spectrum that they would be very far apart. Um, And it's very scary. And I don't know, I don't know what to make of it. And, and I think that people say, well, but look, it worked, right? Because we got over a hundred people out Mm -hmm. by doing that. Um, I get very nervous that um, we're creating a lot of, a lot more people who are miserable in Gaza. I mean, I see the pictures that everybody sees of, you know, these, there are hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians whose, whose lives are being ruined. And, and, um, you know, maybe that's not our intention or that's not our goal, but it's, unfortunately, it's, again, that's what happens when you're in conflict and you're in war. And I worry also about the hostages who are also (laughs) there um, and it's tricky. I don't know what, I don't know what to yeah. make of it. It's painful. I mean, I'm not a, nor- I'm not an objective observer, right? Like my child is there. So I recognize that I'm, I'm not, you know, someone who's removed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I know you and the other hostage families have been, uh, critical of, 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 in some ways of the government's uh, failure to sort of advance those negotiations, you know, with the with Qatar and, uh, and others. But I just wanted to ask you this about you and some some of the other people who are speaking for the hostage families. How significant is it that so many of the voices of this movement are women? I mean, I think I've mentioned it before that I do think that thank God we have young people who've been advising us and saying, "Oh, you need social media," and so we have, you know, one of my um, closest friends, her daughter, who's more like a niece, who's been running the Bring Hirsch Home Instagram and all different social channels. I know nothing about that stuff. I don't even have Facebook. Um, you know, when you're not friends with someone in fourth grade at Anchiamet, you don't have to reconnect when you're, you know, 50. Um, so I never got Facebook because I felt like I it's okay. Anyway, so I will tell our listeners that Rachel is spilling the beans on the fact that we both went to the same school in Chicago. That's right. (laughs) Except that you need a hundred years younger than I am. So I think I was probably in eighth grade when you were in kindergarten. This is the most Jewish conversation two women could ever have. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Jewish geography. Um, But uh, it occurred to me that they're in the war cabinet. There are five men making the decisions about everybody, five white men. And I thought, and in this negotiating, when they go to, you know, Poland or Doha or Egypt or wherever, whatever these rooms are, I'm not sure. I can't speak with a hundred percent certainty because I don't know, but I think the only people in those rooms are men. <laughs> and I started to think like, it's very strange because if there was any other sort of negotiating going on and there was an, a non-representation of part of the people of whom we are trying to negotiate for, I think the whole world would be up in arms. And I also do think that, you know, there's a perspective that you don't get when you don't have women in a room. And I also think there's a perspective you don't get when you don't have a mother in the room. And I'm not saying that I need to be that person but I would love if there was a mother in one of those rooms because it is a different voice. And I think that that should also be the attitude. You know, our problem with this two-pronged approach, Jonathan, as you mentioned, is simply that we, it's not that we're against trying to diminish these 
you know, military capacities that could replicate this atrocity that happened here. It's that we're working on that part 24-7. And we claim that we also equally care about the hostages. And therefore, you should be also simultaneously working 24-7, meaning there should not be one moment of respite. There should be a team of accomplished negotiators, professional negotiators, and people who sit together 24-7 trying to figure out how do we make that work at the same time. Otherwise, you're not being honest because let's face it, if you have two children and you say, I'm going to give each of you exactly the same thing, and then you give one of them 100% of your time, and one of them, every two weeks, you kind of give them some time here and there, and sometimes you get mad and you walk out of the room, that is not giving the same to both. So that's where kind of we we feel that that there could be room for improvement. You're trying to save lives. Uh, everyone helping is trying. But whoever's listening to this conversation, on a practical level, how can they help you? So first of all, on a practical level, if you happen to be um, an American citizen, <laughs> you can call the White House every single day. Um, we spoke to someone high up in the administration when we were in um, Washington a few weeks back. Um, there was a rally in Washington, and um, we met with a lot of people from the administration and Congress. And John said to this man, if this was your son, what would you suggest we do every single day to get your son out? And he said, it will drive us bananas, but you should be calling every single day the White House and your local elected officials mm -hmm. and saying, I am not okay that at that time it was, I think, 13, that there are 13 Americans and, you know, 237 uh, or 227 other human beings who are being held hostage. You know, now we're at a point where there's um, 129 and seven Americans being held hostage um, uh, of those uh, 129. And so if you happen to live in America, we were told call every day. So we actually have hundreds of thousands of people who call every day. And I'm sure that, you know, that poor switchboard, like the telephone answerer is like, oh no, here, here we come again. Um, but they, they count and keep track of all the data and metrics and the subjects so it's important that local elected officials or the highest elected officials, no matter where you live, if you live in the UK, if you live in Germany, if you live in Japan, call your local elected officials and say, I am not comfortable that there are human beings still being held hostage. That's a very doable task. And the thing that's great about it is that it's very ritualized and it takes less than a minute. Yeah. So we know, I know from all you know, my family and friends who do it every morning while they're boiling their water for their coffee or tea, they call the White House every morning and they're like, hey, Irene, <laughs> you know, like now they know these people, you know, it's not okay. And um, so that's definitely something doable. And I wonder in Israel, how do we get to our, to our officials here? I think, you know, I asked actually, like, do they have a switchboard at the Knesset? And I don't know that everyone's in agreement on what should happen, but I, I do think that there's value in just saying we're not comfortable in the current situation. <laughs> you know, like that having having these people there is making us very uncomfortable. And that's something that 
as of a few days ago, I started to get very nervous because I started to feel like when I was a little girl, I didn't grow up in a, in a observant home, but my mother always said, Jews value life, Jews value life. And she, I remember she said, and it even tells us in the Bible that you can break every commandment, except for there's three, um, to save someone's life you know, that uh, we value life so much. And there's something about what's going on now that started to make me feel very uncomfortable that I, I'm scared about how we feel about those 129 that are still there. I'm scared because I think it's going to define us what we decide to do uh, forever. And we won't be able to recover from it. Um, there's also, you know, there's a verse, a pasuk in um, Vayikra in Leviticus that talks about you cannot stand idly by as your brother's blood is shed. And then at the end of that verse, it says, I'm God. And there's a question from the commentators. Why does it say I'm God? Because you could just tell me, don't stand idly by when, you know, you see something bad happening. Why is it saying I'm God? And one of the commentators says, because there's never going to be repentance for that. You can never recover from that. And so we have to really be asking ourselves now, who are we? Even if we pay a horrible price, who are we? And are we okay paying that price? That price being that we won't be who we were. Rachel Goldberg-Pollin, we hope your prayers are answered and you are reunited very soon with Hirsch. We hope all the hostages are reunited with their families very, very soon. Thank you for talking with us so openly on Unholy. Thank you. Thank you. I hope next time Hirsch is here and you can ask him all about his National Geographic days. <laughs> Amen. We look thank forward to that. Much, thank you again. Thank you for having me. What a remarkable uh, woman. And <laughs> you know, we always think about how inspiring these women are, uh, a few of them here in Israel fighting for the release of the hostages. And you think just how Israeli society has discovered them suddenly, and the world has discovered these women, these female leaders, and how much they, ha they would give up this new role in a heartbeat, uh, not to be in this, in this position. Things that she said in this conversation, right, about how she's manufacturing joy, how she's pretending to be uh, human, how you survive this, this really uh, impossible um, situation. And, and the, the thing she ended with, that sort of question that lingers in, in my mind, and I think in the minds of many Israelis, you know, who will we be when this is over? And, and she's right about the fact that the way that this hostage crisis will be resolved will determine a lot about the future of, of Israeli society. Yeah, and the fear there that if somehow the lives of those hostages are discounted when set against the other military objectives that Israel will not, there'll be no atoning for that. It's very powerful. Yeah. It struck me listening to how and why, in a way, she has become so internationally seen. And in a way, this way she can straddle both culture. She obviously lives in Israel and speaks to Israel, but she has been able 
not just through language, but you know, through she uh, through her sort of sensibility to connect with people around the world. How amazing to think all these hundreds of thousands of Christians writing to her, and she found a way to connect with them. You know, using her knowledge of the Advent calendar and so on. But I think that sentiment that she expressed when she was at the UN and she read this poem, where she imagined sitting drinking sweet tea with a Gazan woman like her, their faces lined as they looked at their sons and their grandchildren. I mean. She's imagining, manufacturing that joy. She's imagining a future, but she manages to have room. I mean, how extraordinary. She manages to have room for empathy with the grieving mothers of Gaza. Um, as I said in when I asked her that, there are plenty of people who are not in her position who can't do that, and yet she somehow... Mm-hmm can so a remarkable woman like we said we hope uh, like everyone who listens to this i'm mm-hmm. sure is hoping 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 for um for good news for her and the families like her yeah and, and you know jonathan i think to myself that this is really the conversation to end 2023 with not only because of how eloquent how smart how insightful rachel is but also because in a way, Israelis all feel like they have been taken hostage. It's nothing compared to what the real hostages are going through. But we feel like our our national story has, you know, diverged, has been derailed. This is what we feel like, that this story took us off of, you know, what we sh- where we should have been going. And, and in that regard, I think that is fits. It's very apt that, that this is our conversation that, that, that we're ending with. Very much. Um, I saw that banner. I have only saw it once, actually, when I was in Israel, mm-hmm. in Kibbutz Beri, Kulanu Hatufim. We are all hostages until mm-hmm. they are all back. Um, mm-hmm. And she articulated that. Um, you know, as we look ahead to 2024 and close out 2023, she, uh, as we heard there, speaks with an American accent. She's able to talk to America. This has been a very rocky year for Jews outside Israel, Jews in the United States, partly because anti-Semitic attacks and anti-Semitism up in basically every place where it's measured. And that, you know, these have been very, very disturbing times where, you know, I, I said in our, in our conversation with Ilana Dayan, I think diaspora Jews have a very particular position here because they are really going through in solidarity with what Israel goes through, they are reading about people like Rachel and, you know, feeling it about the hostages. But they are also living in a country and uh, countries that are immersed in the it is a very different narrative, where the pictures every day are not about hostages and their lives, but are instead about the people dead and uh, uh, grieving in Gaza, uh, the way I put it, I think was they're in an environment where they're putting the posters, posters of the hostages up. But they're seeing those posters torn down a few hours later. That is a very different experience. Diaspora Jews will not look fondly on 2023. It's been very, very rough for them too. Yeah, I think it was really a astute observation made by you that it it really is that there's a one group that holds both narratives and sees both narratives is 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 the Jews around the world. Obviously exposed to levels of hatred, it really seemed this year like people, some people were seizing the opportunity to uh, vent their feelings about Jews. And, you know, I don't remember any other nation, nationality, ethnic group, religion, uh, irrespective of what they have done or where they're planning to go with, with this level of intensity of hatred. Now, you know, what Hamas essentially and Hamas's groupies around the world have done here is that made Jews realize 
you know, that their fate is bound up with Israel. I think even the most disconnected Jews feel this year that they are connected to this uh, country. That will have all sorts of ramifications in, in 2024. But I think it will be more difficult for people who have tried to say, uh, you know, obviously David Badil, a former guest on this podcast, being the prime example of that, right? Saying, oh, I'm not connected to Israel at all. I'm just Jewish. But that's different, and he is different, the world is different. Um, but we wanted to try and end on a high note, an impossible challenge for 2023. But uh, anyone who follows the writing of um, Jonathan Friedland closely knows that he has been attempting to do that every year end uh, for the past couple of years, right, Jonathan? And a lovely column, a particularly lovely column this uh, weekend about trying to find rays of light in a very, very dark uh, period. There's also mention of Israel. Trying to do that. Let's try and do that. Come on, say something. <laughs> it is true. It's become my own little minhag. Uh, in my last column of the year, usually appears just before Christmas, and therefore people are watching movies like It's a Wonderful Life and that kind of thing, trying to look for points of light in the darkness. I mentioned a few experiences I'd had, including an amazing encounter. I was invited into a prison by members of a prison reading group, and they had read as their choice for that month, The Escape Artist, my book about uh, Rudolf Werber, who escaped from Auschwitz. <laughs> Cue lots of jokes about, can you give us any tips about getting out? Uh, but the attention they played to that book, the idea of books as a lifeline, even to people in jail, that was a very moving experience. I mentioned two or three other things that happened. But in there, I did even include Israel, the period which uh, you know had been the darkest in some ways of the year. And I mentioned two, a couple of things. One, I would say now on this podcast, the volunteer effort that we have seen, civil society stepping up, amazingly moving. I mean, Rachel Goldberg-Pollin mentioned the volunteers who've come in to help her with social media. But we've seen it at the roadsides in Israel where people were you know, pop up barbecues to feed soldiers, people providing blankets or children's toys for those internally displaced people. I was really struck by that. I was visiting those hotels by the Dead Sea where kibbutzim have been relocated and communities, Sterot or uh, kibbutz Kifsufim and others are there instantly equipped because volunteers and donors came forward. That is very moving. Uh, I met people, activists who have not given up on coexistence. And that was a very moving encounter with a man and a woman together from the group Omdim Biyachad standing together, Jew and an Arab in their 30s, pushing against that grain, still believing that somehow they can forge some life together. And of course, you know, encounters with some of the people who did amazing heroic work on October the 7th, some in some cases, you know, literally jumping in a car, driving down south and rescuing people while the massacre was ongoing. So those are points of light, you know, even in what has been the bleakest, darkest period uh, that many of us mm -hmm. can remember. Yeah, and I, I'll pick up on what you said about Israeli society and about Israelis uh, that have proved this year, I mean, really beyond anything I could have imagined their, their spirit, their tenaciousness, their perseverance, it is remarkable. And uh, you can do many things to us, but you can't break our spirit. And, uh, and I think that's an important thing to hold on to a little bit as we move into 2024. I'm not even going to say, let it be a good year. You know, let's lower our expectations. Mediocre is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Just your run-of-the-mill, normal, boring, mediocre year. Okay? For 2024. I think that's that's something we can live with. Yeah. What do you think? No, I think that's okay. a that's a good that's a good ambition. Uh, you know, just well, a humdrum 
constitutional crisis and and so, you know uh, and elections sort of, in the United States, but really just normal. That would, normal. That would be fine. Um, Completely normal. No, it's it's there is a lot that we've gone through all of us together on the podcast in 2023, and there Indeed. will be a lot more in 2024. But yeah, I think um, that just that we get there, one foot in front of the other, is a good aspiration. And, and look where you're going, one foot after the other. Look where you're going. Yeah. That's just the, the personal aspect there. Um, yeah. So we will say our thing. Thanks <laughs> to Gaia Glaser and Omer Primat, and we will meet in 2024. See you then. See ya.